0: In the classic thriller, Taken, Liam Neeson, who plays the main character, gives his daughter some terrifying advice as she hides under a bed from a group of intruders. Let them take you. And at that moment, the intruders kidnap his daughter and pick up the phone. And Liam Neeson utters this now famous line to her captors. I will find you and I will kill you. It's a chilling moment. Liam Neeson is this ex-CIA, ex-FBI type dude who can kill people, you know, with a paperclip. And he's making a promise to the people who have captured his daughter. He promises both that he will rescue his daughter and punish her captors. In a sense, he gives a promise of salvation that also comes with a guarantee of judgment. Now, in Revelation chapters 6 and 7, Christ promises his church that before he brings rescue, they must first submit to suffering the same kind of suffering and martyrdom that Christ suffered. And this gospel logic defies the standards of the world. The kingdom of God advances not through military power, but through the suffering of its witnesses, through the martyrdom of the church. Or to quote the church father Tertullian, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Things are going to get worse before they get better in the book of Revelation. But it is through the conquering, blood of the Lamb, that the martyrs shed their own blood and also follow in the conquering footsteps of their Savior. This is Understanding Revelation. In Revelation chapter 5, Christ receives a scroll bound by seven seals, which must be broken before its contents can be revealed. Then in Revelation 6, Christ breaks open each seal, which brings about a particular judgment upon the land. Now, remember, we're translating earth as land because the Greek word can be used for both, and it seems like the activity in Revelation is focused particularly on the land of Israel. Now, in Revelation chapter 7, God holds back judgment for a time over the land to mark out 144,000 martyrs who are going to join the multitude of martyrs and participate in God's judgment. So that's the layout of chapters 6 and 7 on the heels of chapter 5. Let's look at the first four seals in Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth, to kill with sword, and with famine, and with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. The four riders in these first four seals serve two purposes— First, they lay out a summary of Revelation. And second, they lay out a symbolic timeline of the period between Christ's ascension and the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Remember, that's the unique perspective we're taking with Revelation, that the majority of the events were already fulfilled in our past, but the Apostle John's near future. These are events leading up to 70 AD, which Jesus prophesied would happen within a generation in his Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. The first rider comes out on a white horse with a bow and a crown, and he's conquering. Now, this is a summary of the seal judgments as a whole, and it symbolizes on the timeline the initial victory of the gospel into the world. After Pentecost, so the initial conversions of the book of Acts, the triumph of the gospel that people are converting in droves from Judaism to Christianity. That's the initial triumph on this conquering white horse. The second seal opens a red rider. A red rider emerges, and that summarizes the trumpet judgments that are going to happen in the next few chapters. And it also symbolizes the conflict that the word of God, symbolized by a great sword, creates among Christians, Jews, and Romans. And the conflict between Christians, Jews, and Romans is going to play a big part in the symbolic imagery later on in Revelation. So the Red Rider removes peace from the world. He doesn't cause war, but he removes peace and war fills the gap. And it echoes the words of Jesus in the Gospels when he says, I didn't come to bring peace, but to bring a sword, to set families against one another. And you're going to see that. The initial triumph of the White Rider brings in its wake chaos among people as the word of God cuts and divides and causes conflict between people. The third seal opens and a black rider emerges carrying a scale and he's dealing with the cost of wheat and barley and he's told not to affect the oil and the wine. Kind of an odd description. So this summarizes the visions of the dragon, the woman, the beasts, and the martyrs, which happened later on in Revelation. And it symbolizes God's preservation of his people, in between the ascension of Christ and the destruction of the temple. The third seal opens with Christ on a black horse and the scales represent the inflated cost of staples like wheat and barley, yet oil and wine remain untouched. Now, Peter Lighthart compares the rawness of wheat and barley with the processed nature of oil and wine. And he thinks that God is working on multiple levels. The raw materials of the old covenant system of temple, sacrifice, and priesthood no longer nourish Only the processed oil and wine of the new covenant in Christ gives life. And later on, you're going to see the motif of wine in the blood of the martyrs. And you're going to start to see the ways in which the temple itself has become a corrupt system. Religion and the market and money and greed all kind of fuse together. And later on, also, the mark of the beast affects the economy of the land and corrupts the temple system as well. But God preserves his people not by preventing them from coming to harm, but by exalting them through their martyrdom. It's the wine of their blood that brings about judgment upon their enemies and also demonstrates God's exaltation of his people. So the big idea with the third rider is that despite the economic and religious disruption that the gospel causes, God still preserves his people, not from martyrdom, but through martyrdom. And through martyrdom, he brings judgment to upon the enemies of his people. Then the fourth seal opens and reveals a man on a pale horse, and this could actually be rendered a pale green horse. And so this summarizes the bold judgments that are going to come later, and it symbolizes Jerusalem's destruction, or rather the events leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem. Jerusalem toward the very tail end when things are starting to get really crazy. So Christ comes bringing death and Hades, which refers to the grave, and he's causing all these events that precede the destruction of the temple that Jesus himself prophesied in Matthew 24. Remember Jesus said, these are the beginning of birth pains. When you start to see these things, that's the time to get out of Jerusalem because the whole thing's going down. What are some of the birth pains that he talks about? He talks about wars and rumors of wars and pestilence and famine and all this kind of political upheaval that's going to precede the temple's destruction. And this fourth rider is symbolizing that time period. So if you want to summarize it with the different riders, the gospel's initial triumph in the in the white rider, then the, the conflict that ensues from the word of God in the red rider, and then the economic malpractice and the religious economy dysfunction that's going to emerge from the conflict that is caused by the Word of God, and it's going to later match on to the beast and the mark of the beast and all that stuff. Just hang tight. That'll come soon. And then the fourth one, the pale green rider, brings forth the chaos that's going to happen before the temple's destruction, just like Jesus prophesied in Matthew 24. Now, the big thing to remember here is that despite God's terrifying judgment, he remains patient because these initial seals don't bring final destruction. And that causes all the martyrs from ages past to cry out for justice. Now think about this. We often think that these ball judgments and trumpet judgments and seal judgments show how trigger-happy and angry God is. But in fact, it shows his patience. He is constantly giving people an opportunity to repent. He's not bringing full destruction. He's pausing and delaying his judgment in many ways because he wants an open door for people to repent. And this causes the martyrs, the ones who have suffered, to cry out and say, God, why aren't you avenging us? And when we start to see the key of the revelation is tied into the story of these martyrs, we start to see why these judgments are actually signs of God's goodness, that God knows his people, God cares, and God takes stock of all the injustices committed against them. This is why the fifth seal releases not a rider, but a vision of martyrs crying out for vengeance at the base of a heavenly altar. This is Revelation 6, verses 9 through 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. I cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Now, Alistair Roberts sees a heavenly version of the purification offering in Leviticus chapter 4. So you see this imagery. There's this altar in heaven and the saints are at the base of this altar. Now, in Leviticus 4, the priest purifies himself before entering the temple by pouring the blood of a bull at the base of the altar. That's where these martyrs are. The martyrs cry out from the base like a heavenly offering with their blood crying out for vengeance like the blood of Abel in Genesis 4.10. God gives them white robes of victory, but he tells them to postpone the celebration. That he's not going to bring full judgment until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. In other words, God must bring in the full number of his martyrs before he executes judgment. So there's two sets of martyrs. There's the martyrs from all time up to that point that are at the base of the altar crying out for God to avenge their blood. And then there's a second group that God is saying is yet to be killed. And until that second group joins the first group, final judgment will not come. That's very important to remember for later chapters of this book. Now we get to the sixth seal. And the sixth seal echoes Jesus' words about earthquakes, a black sun, bloody moon, and falling stars that precede the destruction of the temple. Listen to Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 through 17. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? So, what we see here in the sixth seal is the unraveling of a creation order. Sun, moon, and stars echoes Genesis 1. And in Genesis 1, God is not just constructing a world, he's ordering the world. There's a rhythm to it, an established pattern to it. And it symbolizes also the rulers and principalities of the earth. So this cosmic language is often used in the Old Testament to speak not of physical realities, but spiritual and political realities. So you can look at Isaiah chapter 13, when God judges Babylon and speaks about its fall in terms of the sun, moon, and stars going black. Or uh, the judgment on Edom, which is revealed and spoken of as heaven being rolled up like a scroll. So all of these symbols are meant to depict in heavenly imagery the fall of earthly powers. Now, there's this interesting imagery of a ripe fig tree. Now, or rather, a fig tree that falls in the winter. Ripe fig trees need only a gentle shake for its fruit to fall. But unripe fig trees require violent shaking. And here, there's a violent shaking on a fig tree. It's going to fall like a fig tree. Well, what is that talking about? It's saying that Israel, the fig tree, which is one of the most common symbols for Israel, has failed to bear fruit. It's not ripe. And so God's going to violently shake it as a judgment. And that shaking is symbolized in the destruction of the temple. And this actually disrupts a lot of Rome itself, which I think that's what the sun, moon, and stars refers to. The political powers of the time, the Roman empire itself will be shook up by Jerusalem's destruction. But more on that again in later chapters. And here we see the rulers of the earth, they flee to the mountains and their wealth and power can't save them. Now we hear this in, again, the Olivet Discourse that Jesus speaks in Matthew 24, when people are fleeing Judea to the mountains. Why? Because Jerusalem's going to be destroyed, and the only place to find safety is to run and head for the hills. So the old world of the old covenant is dissolved to make way for the new world of the new covenant, and it's signified by the destruction of the temple. This old world order under the Old Testament system will no longer exist. There are no sacrifices left. You can't go back. There is no high priest. You can't go back. There is no temple to worship in. It's going to be gone. There's a definitive break between Christianity and Judaism that happens when the temple falls. Now that brings us to chapter 7. And in chapter 7, we expect Christ to break the seventh seal, but instead the focus shifts. We see four angels holding back the four winds of heaven, which reveals 144 sealed martyrs from Israel's 12 tribes. In other words, God withholds judgment for a moment so he can mark out People who are going to die for their faith. Listen to the first eight verses of Revelation 7. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to these four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, and 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. Now, we can see that whenever things are numbered, that's referring to a heavenly army. So, the book of Numbers, the being of Joshua, that's all symbolic. So, We're dealing with with language that's showing God amassing this heavenly army of martyrs, of people who are going to die for their faith. Now, I don't think the 144,000 is literal. And Peter Lighthart notes that the 144,000 likely refers to the fullness of Jewish Christian martyrs prior to the temple's destruction. So 144,000 is a multiple of 12. So it's 12 times 12 times 10 times 10 times 10, which is like a magnifying number. So 12 is the fullness of the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles, multiplied together, and then multiplied hundreds of thousands of times. And what this is doing is it's showing this innumerable, massive collection of marked-out martyrs that are going to die before the destruction of the temple. And what God does is he marks them out. He puts a seal on their forehead, which is going to parallel the mark of the beast later on in Revelation. But God marks out his martyrs with a seal, and they are going to escape Jerusalem's final destruction, not by avoiding death, but specifically through their faithful witness unto death. What a comfort that God knows his martyrs. He doesn't count our lives as cheap. He sees the suffering of our brothers and sisters in Iran and in China and in South America and wherever they are, and he knows them by name and he's marked them out. And this is a pattern for martyrs of all times. God knows those who are his. And what a comfort, too, to say, Even though I'm suffering, God knows, and he's marked it out, and he's in control, right? We can endure suffering if we know it's for a purpose. And here, heaven is telling all those who suffer for Christ, there's a purpose to your pain. There's a reason you're suffering. It's fulfilling this great good, this great plan, and God is going to exalt you. It is through the blood of your witness that you conquer, just like Christ conquered through the blood of his witness, Now we finish off chapter 7 with this glorious vision of the saints of the past praising God. This is verses 9 through 17. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The martyrs in heaven from all the ages past are wearing robes washed white by the blood of Christ, as they wait for the 144,000 additional martyrs that are sealed to die. This does not happen until chapters 14 to 15, so there's suspense. Remember, heaven has a timeline. Things are happening in heaven, and things are yet to happen in heaven. But God already gives that multitude from all nations, all the martyrs from all time. He gives them victory branches in anticipation of their glory. God promises the full satisfaction of all thirst and hunger, along with the wiping away of all tears. But even this remains in the future. We don't see that until the new Jerusalem comes at the very end of Revelation. And that's the hope that we look for. We still have tears in this life. We still cry and wait for the final coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we can wait in hope. We can wait in victory. We can wait knowing that the end is secure. That's why these martyrs can already ascribe to God salvation and glory and praise. Because God's judgments are sure. But we still wait in anticipation along with them. Now, martyrdom makes no sense from an earthly perspective. But from a heavenly perspective, it's the pathway to glory. Christ continues to lead us into the world as the conquering king, not through violent force, but by faithful witness and endurance. And all of heaven stands on our side. Who can stand against us? And this is how God works. He works through the weak. He works through sacrifice. He works through the things the world counts as rubbish. And it is through the cross that resurrection comes. That's the big message. The saints are going to ascend through their martyrdom just like Christ ascended through his crucifixion. He emptied himself and took the form of a slave, and therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name above every name. That's Philippians 2. And if that's the path for our Savior, that's going to be the path for his servants. But that's a great hope to those who suffer, that God marks you out, God knows you, and the promise is that he will bring his full vengeance on the earth. And through his vengeance, he will exalt and glorify those who have suffered for his name.